the multiverse um, uh, it, w- it would consist of all these different universes. Uh, David Lewis thought something similar about the reality of of possibility space that for every every you know holistic possibility there's like a real concrete universe where people you know you know when they when they knock on wood it makes it sound like that and so um and so you like you alex have counterparts in these other physical universes that look just like they aren't you but they just they look just like you you're listening to the wake up podcast with alex fetsky the place where the most dynamic thinkers and practitioners in the world drop truth bombs and contrarian viewpoints to help you become the best version of yourself. Find us on the Fountain app and send us a boost with a comment. Craig Warmke joins me on today's episode to discuss his piece in the Bitcoin Times Edition 4, which is called Bitcoin behind the veil. Craig is a philosopher by training, so we hit topics such as, obviously, philosophy, but also truth, the multiverse, and even toxicity right at the end. I think I got him around to the fact that so-called Bitcoin toxicity is not just here to stay, but that it's necessary. You can follow Craig's work, the links are in the show notes. Check out his piece in the fourth edition of the Bitcoin Times, along with the rest of the essays, which are all made possible and free online thanks to the support of Parker and the team at Unchained Capital and Mason and the team at Blockware Solutions. If you're interested in proper self-custody or stacking some KYC free sats via mining, you can learn more about each of them via the links in the show notes. Finally, remember to subscribe to the Wake Up Podcast for more and enjoy the show. Maybe you can just kind of give us a brief overview. It's like, who's Craig? What's your background? Um, You know, what sort of drives you as a person? Sure. Well, uh, I am a professor at Northern Illinois University, and for the last, I'd say about four years now, I've been thinking and writing about Bitcoin, um, and the stuff that I write has a kind of philosophical bent, obviously, since I'm a philosopher, and I don't use that as an honorific, you know, like, I'm a philosopher, so I'm better than someone, it's it's like, it's just what I do, um, and uh, before that, you know, I was just um, teaching in more traditional areas of philosophy, like metaphysics and epistemology and logic. Um, and and before that, I uh, I went to Bible school, so um, I was thinking about um, being like a New Testament historian or a missionary or something. And so I've um, I've been changing the things that I've worked on over the last fifteen years or so, but. The thing that really motivates me is just trying to find the truth. And um, I think the world is a really mysterious place. I think that it's difficult to get beyond our cognitive biases and wishful thinking. And um, I'm a, I guess I, I am a kind of truth maximalist, not in that I have a monopoly on the truth. Um, it's just the opposite. It's like I don't have it and I want it. <laughs> um, and it's an incredibly hard thing to do. Um, but I also think that over the last few years, I wasn't expecting Bitcoin to meet the kinds of um, uh, headwinds that it's run into. And because of all the misinformation and disinformation about Bitcoin, that motivated me to write more about it because that really irked me. 
Okay, beautiful. I, I guess yeah. there's there's a couple of things I want to say say on that. Um, yeah. Uh, let me just write this note here. Uh, so number one is um, when you said the when you said philosopher, and it reminds yeah. me of the the quote by Bruce Lee. He was asked by Linda, uh, you know, what what do you do at um, universities like uh, philosophy? And she says, oh, okay, so what are you going to do with that later? And he said, and he's uh, Answer back because I uh, think deep thoughts about being unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. There's a, um, it's a classic. Yeah. There's another one about university budget constraints. Um, and there's a joke mm-hmm. about how, um, you know, what's the, what's the difference between mathematicians and philosophers? And uh, the answer is that uh, mathematicians actually have wastebaskets. Um, <laughs> so, so the idea is that uh, we don't, we don't throw our trash away. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah interesting it's um look I, I think philosophy is kind of it's it's one of those subjects as you said it's like a lot of people use it as like a a badge of honor and you know like i'm better than you i'm smarter than you and you know yeah. kind of the um seems like the in some cases the talibs of the world kind of represent that persona these days particularly particularly yeah. you know talibs uh twitter persona but it's, I mean, for me, th- there's, there's no more important and foundational topic than philosophy. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of yeah. this pursuit of understanding the way or the, you know, the, the truth or the, or the golden thread, which brings me to my next question after hearing, you know, your, your intro there is like, you said you're in this pursuit of, of truth. And I'm curious how you, as a, I guess, as a, literally a, a philosopher by, um, by job description, uh, how you define this word truth, because there's, there's a lot yeah. of like, you know, uh, philosophers around Bitcoin these days. And, you know, there, there's a lot of good ones, I must say, um, mm-hmm. you know, that are sort of self-taught, but, you know, you've sort yeah. of gone through a you know, more rigorous process. So I'm curious to understand your, your definition of, of the truth um, and what that means to you. Yeah, good. So I'm, <sighs> I'm very much in, in the more traditional camp where um, there's a way that reality is and we can um, uh, more or less accurately describe it. And when you capture um, reality as it is, and then you've, in a sense, you know, found, found what's true. And so truth is something like a match between um, how we represent the world and how the world really is. Um, there's, there's been a movement um, for quite a while now of p- people saying things like, no, this is your truth or this is my truth. Um, and this, this, you know, views in philosophy are surprisingly difficult to squash, even if they strike us as quite silly. But this is a view that, this is the kind of view that I think is very difficult to defend. Um, it, it, you might, you might um, heard about like postmodernism um, and, you know, studying this kind of view is not my specialty, but um, I don't see how things could be any other way that there's a way that the, that reality is, and then we can more or less accurately describe it. And um, if you, um, want reality to be a certain way, that doesn't mean it is that way. If you see a certain reality, if, if you see reality a certain way, that doesn't mean it is that way. So there's the, a real difference between appearance and reality. 
and um, it's it's um, that chasm between uh, what we want to be true, uh, what we think is true, how reality appears to us, and then how reality really is. That that actually makes um, doing real inquiry uh, difficult because there's a gap, and it's it's not clear to me. It's not clear to a lot of people that we have the cognitive the real like cognitive capacity and cognitive horsepower in order to bridge that chasm. But I think, I think we can to some extent, and at the very least we can, um, uh, uh, object to bad arguments and, uh, defend the good arguments against objections. Okay. So, so just to, can I ask you two things then? Yeah. Number one is like, can you give me an example? Well, actually, yeah. one thing for clarification, you, sure. you said um, reality and appearance. Did, did you kind of more mean reality and perception of reality? Is that what you mean by appearance? Yes. Like in the, yeah. In those? yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay. okay. Um, so then what, what's an example of, you know, I, I guess an objective truth that is, um, that is provable that, for example, postmodernists or these people that believe in, you know, the relative nature of truth. Uh, what's an example that, I guess, stumps their yeah, good. version of philosophy? So, so we can ground this in something. Yeah, good. I mean, there are, there are very few knockdown arguments, but um, they think there are certain, um, certain ways to go about doing this. I mean, First, I think that there are um, universal, um, universally applicable uh, moral principles. And I think that people would be hard-pressed to disagree. So, for example, I think most everyone would agree that rape is morally wrong, that murder is morally wrong. Um, there are further questions about why or what it means to say that those things are morally wrong, but I think almost everyone agrees that they are. And... Um, uh, but the disagreements really uh, come in when we discuss um, why or how come. So that seems to be like an objective truth. Um, what's about what's uh, in this case about what's right or wrong. Another kind of um, set of objective truths, in my view, are um, historical truths. So what really happened? You know, it might be really difficult to tell what's really happened. You know, so like for like one. Um, one putative historical, historical event that I care about quite deeply, whether or not it happened, is Jesus' resurrection. So did that really happen? Um, or did it not? And, and the, the question of whether it really happened or not, it's, it's meaningful. Um, and I think it's either, uh, um, yes, it did happen or no, that it didn't. Um, the the ways that it might not have might not have happened are are several, um, but I think people are also willing to admit that you know there are um, objective truths about what's happened, and there I think there are all sorts of objective truths that people have to admit are in a sense you know universally true or mind independently true. Um, another one is mathematics. You know, two plus two equals four. Um, two times three equals six. You know, then. Um, we, we can, of course, get more complex, but I'm not a mathematician. Um, and so, uh, and then truths of physics, you know, these are the kinds of things that, uh, although our physical theories may not be complete, 
um, some of our you know main and most successful physical theories might contradict each other at at the edges um we can still think that they are describing something external um an external reality and that they can um more or less um accurately or correctly reflect what's really out there so i think once you start thinking about like what um the sorts of things that we believe i think the the realm of what's you know objectively true it starts becoming quite large historical truths mathematical truths um uh and then i would also throw in you know various philosophical truths yeah scientific truth i'd 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 kind of throw in biological truths in terms of yeah you know what we we, we kind of kicked off the um the discussion with yes with one of those it's like yeah, yeah. How, how many genders are there there's not 26 there's two yeah um so yes yeah, it's, it's difficult because what's happened over the last um i'd say maybe 30 20 to 30 years is that um the people who are propounding um this proliferation of genders they mean something very different by gender than what you or i might mean. yeah and and so that's mm -hmm. part of the difficulty is that people aren't really speaking the same language anymore and it, it makes it difficult to try to um come into truce well the, the thing is that there's a difference between and, and this is where i like uh, people like Persig and his work is that, you know, there's a, there's a difference between a person's, um, you know, energetic, I wouldn't even call that gender. I'd, I'd call that um, their energetic essence, you know, is it more masculine or is it more feminine? Um, sure. And by, and by and large, there is a strong correlation relationship between uh, biological gender and uh, energetic essence, at least in my experience is that, you know, if you're a guy, you are, yeah generally by and large more masculine now that doesn't mean there are no feminine males because there right. are right. the problem is conflating the energetic essence with the biological reality and starting to try and you know blend one into the other and you know in robert persig's work for example he talks about i don't know if you're familiar with his stuff like uh no. the the zen of um he, what was his two books he's got leela which is a fucking fantastic book it's called okay. the metaphysics of quality uh it's called leela and it's an inquiry into quality or value so it's the metaphysics of quality or the metaphysics of okay. value Terrific. very very incredible incredible book and then uh prior to that he wrote um zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance which is oh i've heard of that one yeah yeah so yeah. that's the one that's more people know of but apparently okay. leela is the more profound um book and it kind of talks about like uh, being able to uh, break reality up into four realms, and uh, I'm I may butcher this, but uh, the sort of the the base realm is kind of the the realm of matter. Um, mm -hmm. Then you've got the the realm of biology. Um, then you've got the realm of um, I think it's intelligence, and then you've got um, the social realm, and, and those four realms kind of their own universes and and they they have their own versions of uh value and quality um that don't necessarily blend into each other and then when trying to take what is true or valuable or qualitative from one realm and trying to apply that into another you run into trouble because they're not necessarily um they're not necessarily conducive but it's a you know that, that that's a whole rabbit hole that 
maybe oops maybe in future um you know when you get a chance to read that book maybe we can we can dissect that a little bit because it's it's one of the one of the better bits of uh metaphysical philosophy that i've ever read yeah um, yeah thanks for the recommendation i'll i'll try to check it out before we talk next um it sounds i mean it sounds um prototypically philosophical because i mean we have a we have a, a predilection or a fetish for um categorizing things and it sounds like he has a nice way to classify certain kinds of phenomena yeah it's it's really interesting because he kind of makes the point that you know the you know he, he he talks about like the static and dynamic as the as the two things and that uh, you've got s- dynamic qualities, kind of like the razor's edge and static qualities, the the structures we build and kind of existence happens at the kind of the nexus of those two points. And, mm-hmm. you know, it really aligns well with, you know, Jordan Peterson's work on, you know, chaos and order and all this sort of stuff. So, so it's a, it's quite a broad, broad um, piece of work, but I, I wrote down like, cause I was, as you were talking yeah. about truth, I wanted to actually ask you, um, you know, what's your opinion if if you'd read Persig's work uh, on metaphysics because he he has some stuff on truth but put placing that aside because you mm-hmm. haven't read his work sure. um what you were discussing sounds it, or at least to me echoes uh, Ayn Rand's kind of position on objectivism would that would that be an accurate assumption there or not really I'm not so sure um so I'm not a I'm not a Randian um and I'm not sure what objectivism amounts to. Is there a way, not to put you on the spot, is there, is there a way you can like boil it down into its essence? I am also not an objectivist, but from, from you know, one of the core tenets of her, um, I guess, ideology uh, mm-hmm. or philosophy is that what you said before it's like that there are objective truths that are inescapable um yes. you know she's got the famous quote which is a is a um and no matter how much you want to pretend that um a is b um there's she, she's got another famous quote which is there there are no contradictions uh, in reality yes so if if there is a contradiction the misunderstanding is with yourself not with uh reality so if you behave um you know, in accordance with some fantasy, truth will actually end up catching up with you because there is an objective truth that you can't escape no matter the amount of uh, philosophizing or sophistry you kind of overlay it with. So so she's yeah. got a, you know, I guess objectivism is a very, um, you know, in some sense, like brutal direct philosophy that says, I, I, I don't care what you think, um, A is A, and, you know, there, there are a priori truths here that, uh, you, you're not you're not going to escape. Um, and then, th- I mean, th- there's a whole lot yeah. more there, but I think that would be my attempt at trying to sum up her position. Yeah, I mean, those those parts of her thought, I'm totally sympathetic with. So, um, so in uh, in mathematical logic, um, there's this uh, principle called explosion, which says that. Um, from any contradiction, everything follows. And, and the idea is that um, uh, from, from a contradiction, you can infer anything. Because it's like, it's as if, because um, what would it take for a contradiction to be true? For it to be raining now here and for it 
to be not raining now here. Um, it's, you know, it's impossible. The world would explode. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, <laughs> and so anything goes, if the laws of logic go, any, anything goes. So that's the idea. And um, so I think that contradictions aren't possibly true. And so if you um, pinpoint a contradiction in your thinking, then something has to go. And, and then using various tools, we can try to f figure out which one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that, yeah. that to me, I guess, aligns very well with, uh, with Randy and thought. I mean, I mean, have, have you, have you gone down her rabbit hole, like of, of any of her work or not really? No, embarrassingly, no. So, okay. I, um, something that, uh, probably a lot of people may not know, um, who have not been through like the gamut of, um, academic philosophy in the United States. And, um, and, and there's no reason to expect anyone to know, um, is that once you, once you get into graduate school in philosophy, the kinds, the range, the range of authors, um, that people read is, uh, surprisingly narrow and, and highly technical. And so you, and also, um, to be honest, there's a bit of, a uh, an ideological restriction on the things that you'll read. And so there are, there are an embarrassing number of philosophers whose work I've read very little or no, nothing at all. So I, I'd, I'd include Rand, um, in that group and there are a bunch of others and that's partly because of of these factors i just explained and so um you you have limited amount of time to produce produce original philosophical work and um you are typically kind of guided into one of these like narrow sub disciplines of philosophy and then you just read all of that and so um even though um, I see myself as more of a generalist than perhaps more or other professional philosophers would. Um, I'm not as much of a generalist as say, uh, my collaborator, collaborator, Andrew Bailey, who's read more widely. And so, mm -hmm. um, there's just, yeah, um, I would like to read Rand someday. I would like to read Schopenhauer someday. <laughs> I would like to read, um, uh, is it Persig, um, that yeah, you just yeah. mentioned? Yeah. All these kinds of things. And my specialty is more like in philosophical logic and, and philosophy of mathematics. And so, um, my repertoire is just embarrassingly small. And, and I think for most well, people, give, uninteresting. Give, me, give me some examples. Yeah. Is there, is there some names that people might recognize? Yeah. Well, um, maybe not. <laughs> so, um, so here's, so, so here's, yeah. So there's, um, there's a guy named David Kellogg Lewis. Uh, David Lewis is widely thought to have been one of the greatest philosophers of the last 300 or so years, uh, maybe since Leibniz. And outside of academic philosophy in the United States or um, English-speaking Europe, very few people have ever heard of him. And um, he was just an utter beast um, in the kinds of... Uh, contributions he made to all sorts of fields, including li linguistics and metaphysics, um, epistemology. 
Um, and on top of that, he was a beautiful writer, which, um, uh, which is very difficult to do in analytic philosophy. Most of the writing is really dry and overly technical and boring and um, uh, typically, you know, two or three times as long as it needs to be. So David Lewis is one person I respect, even though I disagree with him about almost everything. Um, he's one person. Have you heard of David Lewis? No. Okay. Uh, so, so, yeah, yeah. so David Kellogg Lewis. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very interesting guy. Um, people treat him as something like a philosophical God. Um, and then another person, um, another, another philosopher I, I really do like, I mean, um, there are a number of them from the 20th century, but I don't think people would really have heard of them. So, um, Peter Vinnenwagen, Alvin Plantiga, um, let me look at my bookshelf here, uh, Saul Kripke. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, these are like the, uh, the rock stars from the, like the sixties to the nineties. Um, the, it's the stuff that I, uh, grew up with in grad school, like, you know, teething uh interesting yeah interesting. yeah yeah do you know what that they've they've all flown over my head i'm, I'm not familiar with any of them yeah so, so kind of what 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 would be some schools of philosophy that they might be uh, maybe related is the wrong word yeah. to use but kind of like more, more famous names that mm -hmm. might be in similar schools mm-hmm like, like, well, what kinds of things do they argue for? Yeah, for example, yeah. yeah. yeah like, okay, good. Like, yeah. So, um, so I wrote my dissertation on um, a, a subdiscipline of metaphysics called modality. And modality concerns um, the notions of necessity and possibility. So what can, can be, what must be. And um, around the... 20s to 1920s to 1930s, there um, uh, rose up a bunch of different logical systems, formal systems, almost mathematics, about how to draw certain inferences about what can be and what must be. And this is highly formal um, um, area of uh, kind of mathematical philosophy. And there are all these different systems and people didn't really know like which one might more accurately reflect, reflect reality than another. Um, so for example, um, is um, what's necessarily possible. Is that true? Um, like if something is necessarily possible, is it actual? Or if something is um, possibly necessarily possible, is, is it possible? Um, now, these questions sound like gobbledygook, <laughs> but they actually have real theoretical import. Um, so, for example, um, you can reframe an argument for God's existence along these certain lines, and then, uh, but that argument will only work in certain modal systems, certain systems of logic. Okay, so how do you, how do you go about like picking one? Well, then in the 60s, there was a, a teenager who's, who, who's, whose parents were family friends with the Buffets, actually, in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And his name is uh, Saul Kripke. I mentioned him just a minute ago. Uh, so he's a teenager and he writes uh, the, you know, um, 
like the generational <laughs> papers on um, how to make sense of these logical systems. And he created the formal machinery that we would later call possible world semantics. Um, possible world semantics is, you know, it's highly formal, but the gist of it is that um, something is necessary when it's true in every possible world. And then something is possible just in case it, it's true in at least one possible world. Um, and then from this, you can deduce surprisingly a lot and you get more or less plausible results for some of these um, different systems. Um, so this is the area that I, <laughs> I was working in and I developed like an alternative formal system uh, to Kripke's and um, I'm quite partial to it. But the general idea of, of my framework is that um, something's necessary when it's being the case is just part of being a world in general. Say so. We we often talk this kind of way. So, for example, we might say that um, being a mammal is just part of being a dog. What are we communicating there? Something like you know, dogs must be mammals. <laughs> um, it's part of the essence of being a dog um, that a dog is a mammal. So, dogs must be mammals. So, similarly, something is necessary when it's being the case. It's just part of being a world, uh, uh, the totality of everything that exists. Um, and this is not like a spatial notion of parthood. Again, it's like, kind of like being part of the essence. Um, and then something is possible um, when it's not being the case, is not part of being the world. And, and it turns out this system that I developed is uh, kind of like mathematically inverted from the one that Kripke developed. And so it's equally explanatorily powerful and formally flexible. Um, but this is the sort of thing. And so like David Lewis, the guy who I mentioned earlier, um, um, he had a particular view of what possible worlds are. Mm -hmm. And there were debates among all these different philosophers and like the starting from the seventies, like soon after Kripke wrote his papers as a teenager, which is wild by the way. But um, um, soon after the seventies, eighties, nineties, all these guys were having arguments, but okay. Well, so possible worlds are like super um, plausible theoretical posits, but what are they? And the majority position, the orthodox posi position was that they are like abstract objects like numbers. Um, and David Lewis um, went for the view that uh, possible worlds are uh, concrete <laughs> island universes, just like our own. Um, so I don't know if you've heard of something like the Everettian interpretation of quantum mechanics, where like every like basically every um, possible swerve of a particle gets you a whole different universe. The multiverse um, uh, it it would consist of all these different universes. Uh, David Lewis thought something similar about the reality of, of possibility space that for every, every, you know, holistic possibility, there's like a real concrete universe where people, you know, you know, when they, when they knock on wood, it makes it sound like that. And so, um, and so you, like you, Alex, have counterparts in these other physical universes that look just like, they aren't you, but they just, they look just like you, they behave like you, except that, you know, they, they, they make different decisions here and there, or they might have a slightly deformed pinky, you know, um, they might have a longer beard, but this is the sort of thing that I was working on. And the thing is that um, academic philosophy has changed a lot. Um, ex increasingly so over the last five years. And so 
Um, even though I, I still care about this, I, I think the questions are meaningful and interesting. The number of people who are working them, on them um, was dwindling. And so I had a smaller and smaller audience. And, you know, at a certain point, you just, you just ask, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> and um, <laughs> I think for a lot of people who still work on this, if, you know, it's, it, the only answer is like, uh, well, for my own benefit or for posterity in case like someone reads this like 200 years from now. And uh, at a certain point, that became less appealing to me. I um, so around that, around this time, I discovered Bitcoin, and reading the white paper, it uh, blew my mind. And after having read it, um, which I didn't fully understand at first, but from what I did understand, I thought, man. Um, this is more interesting. People will find this more interesting than what, whatever I'm working on. And I thought that um, I, I could do, you know, my own small part in increasing other people's understanding of something that I saw as tremendously important. Um, instead of trying to convince someone of my own creation, you know, this alternative formal semantics I was talking about, which I don't, I just don't have the energy for. Like I, um, I, I was, I was, um, if I had kept working on it, I would have been a bitter old man um, because no one would have paid it attention. And I think when you work on like your own original work in this way and no one pays you attention, um, there's a tendency to feel like you've, um, you're like, maybe like you're the chosen one. And, um, and, or I should say, I should put it like this since I'm talking about myself, I'm the chosen one. I came up with this and people aren't paying attention to me and then, and then to be salty about it. And I didn't want to become that sort of person. And so I thought like, so like reading and reading the white paper and finding Bitcoin, it came at a perfect time because it allowed me to, um, to see something that someone created that was much more meaningful than anything that I'd created. And it was much more interesting and it had the capability of doing much more good by far, like not even close to anything I'd ever done. And so I saw this, um, I saw working on Bitcoin as a way to like work on someone else's original thought, kind of put my own stuff on the back burner and hope that I could, in some small way, put a dent in the universe uh, for the good. Yeah, wow. Okay, that's a interesting journey. Um, fuck, there's so much I want to pull from there. So did, am I right in assuming, I guess this ties into the article that you wrote for the Bitcoin Times, it's um, yeah. you kind of took your model and kind of use that to to create this kind of two worlds um argument for bitcoin is, is yeah yeah right good assuming good. that yeah so um yeah so possible worlds do come up so um maybe i can explain a, a little bit more about the thought experiment so yeah, yeah yeah let's do it yeah so the the thought experiment is the overall purpose is meant to help people um to some extent shed their cognitive biases, even if temporarily, even if just to a small degree, so that they can think through an issue with more clarity and less burdened 
by those cognitive biases. Okay, so what are the cognitive biases and what's the experiment? So the cognitive bias overall is um, self-interest. And so um, we do this all the time. You, we might know it under the heading of like motivated reasoning um, or self or self-enhancement bias. And here's what happens. Um, so um, suppose, um, suppose you're wealthy. Um, likely you'd like or prefer not to pay uh, even more taxes than you already pay. That makes complete sense. It's, ra- it's a rational thing to want. Um, if you're poor, would you like to tax the rich so that you might be able to um, uh, increase your standing in society by having a bit more welfare support? Uh, yeah, that's rational. Okay. Um, so this is self-interest in play. Now, the funny, so, but what, the, the way I think about self-interest is that it's more powerful than just having an alignment between where you are in society and what you want. The, the, the bias is, is uh, stronger. Um, so consider the wealthy who would prefer you know, lower taxes. If they had been poor, they likely would have preferred higher taxes on the rich. Um, if the, the, the poor, although right now, overall, on the whole, they prefer higher taxes on the rich, if they had been wealthy, you know, if their parents had been wealthy, if they had more wealth, they would have preferred lower taxes. And so our position in society really affects, um, I think, some of the tendencies we have um, about which policies are more just, um, uh, our beliefs about which policies are more or less just. And so this very same kind of tendency is one I think also affects people's attitudes about Bitcoin. So um, there are roughly, I think, two, two people, <laughs> two kinds of people um, who are vocal about Bitcoin, uh, you know, what we would think of as no coiners and then um, Bitcoiners. So Bitcoiners, um, are they su- subject to cognitive bias? Of course, we all are. Um, and uh, I am, of course. And I've, I've, um, I run into my own cognitive biases often because um, sometimes, you know, um, people tell me I'm wrong about something and then I don't believe them. And then later I discovered that they were right. <laughs> Um, and I think, oh man, it really, it really seemed to me like they were wrong. And I was, my judgment was clouded. And, and those are just about the issues that I could, you know, reflect on, um, that like empirical results and see how I was wrong. What, what about all the things that I'm wrong about that I'll never see the falsifying results from? Okay. So anyway, um, Bitcoiners have subject to cognitive bias. Um, we have, we bought Bitcoin. Um, our reputations are tied to Bitcoin. Um, we have <laughs> Bitcoin jobs, we have um, Bit- Bitcoin Twitter, you know, we, we care about Bitcoin, we want it to succeed. And so, of course, we're going to be subject to some cognitive bias, we're, we're going to discount objections to Bitcoin, and we're going to overweight the arguments in Bitcoin's favor. I think that's just a matter of fact. Um, how that actually plays out in the details is going to be hard to flesh out, but it's just a fact that we're going to be biased. Um, and because of that, um, you know, like as an academic, I, I have to disclose 
that I work for or am affiliated with various um, Bitcoin institutions. So I'm a fellow with the Bitcoin Policy, Policy Institute, which is a, a, a great thing. But I need to disclose that because I'm trying to educate people about Bitcoin and, and really, I mean, how I see it, combating misinformation. So I need to disclose that. I write for Atomic Finance. It's a Bitcoin startup company. Um, of course, they're like pro-Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin success um, is what they've tied you know, their wagons to. And so I need to disclose that. So, and that's fair. That's fine. We should all just dis- we should all disclose um, in these ways. Um, but what often goes underappreciated is the cognitive bias on the other side. And so I'm thinking of uh, what we may think of as the elites, um, especially um, uh, professors who are economists or computer scientists, and also in addition, um, especially people in the media. Um, and um, not only do they often have ideological or political views, which are at odds with the views of many Bitcoiners and maybe at odds with Bitcoin itself, but um, they often came out against Bitcoin very early. Like Paul Krugman's first anti-Bitcoin piece was in like 2011. And you can't tell me that that doesn't have an effect on how people reason, because how do we reason? We, if we make our, up our mind about something, especially if we've um, publicly made up our mind, we've issued public judgments and they're quite strong, we're going to be much more likely to stick to our guns, even in the face of um, falsifying information. And, and also, let's think about um, the 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 bags that no coiners carry, their bags aren't tokens. Their bags aren't coins. Um, their bags are the opportunity costs of having been wrong about Bitcoin. And so I'm, I'm writing a paper right now with Will Luther, uh, an economist from Fort Atlantic. He's a real one. Um, but uh, what we argue is that um, if you've issued a public anti-Bitcoin statement, you can roughly calculate the opportunity costs. It's a very simple equation. Um, you calculate the, the date of that um, negative proclamation, the Bitcoin price on that day, and then you see how much money they lost out on just from an extremely modest buy. So, I did this for Paul Krugman. If he had bought Bitcoin in 2011, like with just $500, even though I'm sure already by then he was very wealthy, if he had just put $500 of Bitcoin, he would have made multiple millions just by hodling. Okay. Shouldn't he disclose that? I think he should disclose that because um, he's carrying bigger bags of things than maybe I will ever carry. And if, if uh, working for Bitcoin or upholding Bitcoin um, is something that we should disclose um, rightly because of the way that we think it might uh, affect our judgment, then no coiners who've issued negative public judgments, especially to big audiences, especially a long time ago, they, they should also disclose. And, or, you know, who cares whether they disclose or not? We know their opportunity costs. And we know why they're salty, <laughs> roughly. I mean, we can't, 
you know, pick and choose certain people and say, you're selfish because of this. But just the way that human psychology works, we can, we can issue this kind of like in general judgment that like, okay, here are 10 like, like upset, no queeners who seem to be resistant to new information, who don't respond to reasons. Probably a good portion of them are just salty that they missed out on generational wealth, even though they had the expertise to understand Bitcoin and they had the money in order to buy it. And they, and they had the, um, uh, the, the kind of early access to information about it. The very, very few people had at the time. And so I think we can say reasonably that a lot of no coiners have um, a strong tendency to fall for FUD, basically, because of the, they're holding these bags of opportunity costs, which are so heavy. Okay, so now, now it's all fair. So now we have these, everyone is subject to cognitive bias, um, not just Bitcoiners, but also no coiners. So how do we get rid of this bias or how can we um, you know, cap it at the knees and so that we can think about Bitcoin more clearly? And um, I, um, I was looking through my like philosophical toolkit, you know, for the right kind of tool. And uh, I found a kind of thought experiment that's ins um, inspired by uh, John Harsanyi. Um, so John Harsanyi is, a, I think, a, an Hungarian political philosopher from like the mid 20th century. And... Um, he was not so happy with the uh, the work of John Rawls, who came up with a, a kind of behind the veil argument. And so, what happens behind the veil for John Rawls? Well, um, you um, you have like one or more uh, people who um, who are just completely blind to the world. They don't know you know like any about what's going on. They don't know who they are or anything. But then they're tasked with coming up with principles of justice. And for Rawls, this means um, choosing the, uh, the principles that would uh, lift the lowest boats the highest. So this is called the minimax principle. And so like um, often people think that this would result in like really, really, well, like, you know, a, a very strong welfare state, basically, because you want to lift the lowest, the highest. Um, Harsanyi thought about this a, a bit differently and Harsanyi thought that instead we could think about it this way. So, so and here's, here's the experiment then how I would think of it. So you take a pill and it temporar temporarily erases all of your uh, memories about who you are, where you came from, uh, anything about your religi religion, sex or gender, uh, your wealth, where you live, and so on. You know nothing about yourself or how you fit into the world. Okay? Um, so you just like wake up in darkness and a voice says to you, Alex, <laughs> you've taken this pill. Your memories have been temporary, uh, temporarily erased. And now you have a choice over the next few hours. Um, and the choice is whether you want to actualize this world over here or that world over there. You don't know which one is actual. And for all you know, you're choosing to make one actual. It's up to you. So this is 
this is, you know, huge level of responsibility. So you want to get it right. So what are the two worlds like? Well, one world is, uh, is our world, the world that we think of it. And this is where possible worlds come in that we talked about earlier. So you're kind of deciding about which of two worlds to actualize. And the, this world, of course, has Bitcoin. Okay, so very simple. The other world is a lot like our world, except it has no Bitcoin. Satoshi never created it and no one ever will. Okay, so these very two worlds and they kind of, there's a fork in the road between them at around the time that like um, Satoshi lives and creates Bitcoin. Maybe he gets hit by a bus or something and no, no one's ever brilliant enough to come up with it. Um, okay, so now you're, you're behind the, the veil where you lack knowledge about who you are and where you fit into society. Um, but you know that you exist in both worlds. You just don't know who you would be. And your decision is about which world to actualize. And so this is a decision uh, with risk because wh which, whichever world you actualize will have an effect on your station in society. And we often think that decisions under risk come under the umbrella of orthodox decision theory. And, and according to orthodox decision theorists, your task in deliberating and then choosing is to find the option that uh, maximizes expected utility. So consider a lottery. Um, should you buy a lottery ticket? Well, um, there are two options, yes and no. Um, and then we can, we can calculate the expected utility. So if you buy a lottery ticket, um, let's say it's like a 100, 100 ticket lottery or something. Um, no, let's make it worse. Let's make it a million. Um, so a million ticket lottery. So you have a one in a million chance of, of winning. And uh, the question is whether or not you should buy a ticket. You can appeal to orthodox decision theory um, to see uh, whether the, the buying a ticket or the not buying a ticket maximizes expected utility. Um, if you buy, if you don't buy a ticket, you just save like the $2. That's pretty good. Um, if, you, if you buy a ticket, um, you at least have a little chance, a one in a million, you're saying there's a, you're saying there's a chance, there's a, a one in a million chance of, um, you know what I'm talking know. about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So um, there's at least there's a one in a million chance of winning the lottery. And, um, and, then, and then, so what you do is you, you divide the winnings by a million and then, um, um, uh, and multiply that by um, the, the, I'm going to get the mathematics all messed up here, but the idea is that um, you, you have a, a one in a million chance of uh, winning a, a bounty. And then all the, all the rest of the possible decisions that don't result in you winning just result in you spending the $2 for a lottery ticket. Um, and then, so you calculate the probability of the win by the winnings. Um, and then you calculate the probability of, of not winning and just spending the $2. And then whichever one has the, the, the most expected utility is what you should do. Um, now, there's a wrinkle here in that um, some of us are more risk-seeking than others. So I'm like pretty risk-averse. And so for me, this definitely skews my uh, preference towards uh, not playing the lottery at all because 
Um, the chances are so low that it's most likely that I'm just going to waste my money. Uh, whereas some people might be more risk seeking and think, you know, it's just two bucks. Um, uh, winning a million dollars, even if it's just one in a million, could really increase my lot. And, you know, I, I like, you, you, for a lot of people, I think just engaging in risky behaviors is, is um, partially a reward in itself. Um, so they think about like gambling on sports. Some people like gambling on sports, not only for the chance of winning, but also because it, it heightens the enjoyment of, you know, um, of the game itself yeah. when you know that you have money on it, you have skin in the game. And so, um, mm -hmm. but the, the, the main idea is that then um, we, we should choose the option that uh, maximizes expected, expected utility modulo our risk preference. And for each of those two worlds, um, you could be anyone. Uh, you don't know who you're going to be. And, and so, um, and so, uh, as long as you're not super risk seeking, um, you're going to want to pick the world, which has, you know, a bit more expected utility than the other one, uh, when you're behind the veil. And so what do you, what are the kinds of tools you need in order to make that decision? Well, you need to know a bunch of empirical data about the worlds. And, and so this is an invitation for empirical data then. So, and you're going to make the decision purely based on empirical data. And so this is the way that we, at least uh, in some way, try to minimize the impact of our cognitive bias. You have to focus solely on the empirical data about, say, like inflation or banking or ransomware and drug dealing and kidnapping and the way that like the presence or absence of Bitcoin might tilt the scales in each of these things. And then... Um, try to make a guess about which world would have more expected utility. So in effect, you know, the calculation is impossible, um, not only because we, we don't have the access to the expected utility of not only everyone in this world, but everyone in the other world, <laughs> you know, which doesn't even exist. Um, but we, we like the capacity to like add whatever those utilities might be. And of course, we're not going to be able to gather all the empirical data. So in some ways, actually in every way, this is a heuristic device. It's, 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 a, it's a way to get you in the mood of just focusing on the empirical data and whether or not Bitcoin improves the world or not overall. Okay, so my... my I guess to, to simplify it, you've tried to put some sort of structure, framework, or rigor around basically just the thought experiment of trying your best to objectively, without a cognitive bias, look at is the world a better place with or without Bitcoin? And yeah. even though it's impossible to measure that because we don't have, it's impossible to empirically measure for or against anyway. Um, are you saying you've just made some generalizations at the end of the day with respect to, you know, hey, on balance with Bitcoin, with the existence of Bitcoin, uh, yeah. this seems to be better, this seems to be better, this seems to be better, et cetera. Um, yeah. This may be worse, this may be worse. And on balance, we've got more for than against and therefore the world is better off with Bitcoin versus not. Is, is that kind of like a, a decent summation or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's my view. The on balance, Bitcoin is overall good. Mm -hmm. even, even though it's not perfect and even though it might introduce some new evils or some 
new bad things that we didn't have before. But over, overall, it, it's, you know, net good. And, uh, and so that's how I think of it, even though we don't have the, the capacity to do this with like fine formal precision in the way that the, like in the way that would really happen in the thought experiment, but that's okay. This is a heuristic. It's a kind of device to help us minimize the effect of bias. Now, someone might ask like, is this, uh, is this like actually possible for someone to use in a way that would change their mind? Well, I mean, maybe not. Um, but I think if anyone is truly interested and open-minded in trying to run through the experiment, the, the, and this is helpful for me too, you have to be open to the empirical data. You can't block the empirical data. So you have to look at data on runaway inflation. You have to look at data about how many people are unbanked and for what reasons. You have to look at the data about capital controls. Um, mm -hmm. And this, I think, especially for no coiners who I often disagree with, um, I think that's tremendously helpful because this is often data that they don't see or they ignore or um, uh, for whatever for whatever reason it doesn't enter their kind of their um, uh, their attention. And so, uh, but the the same is also true of Bitcoiners. So um, I think that there are, I mean, it's uh, it's actually harder for me to come up with um, ways that Bitcoin would make the world worse. Um, but I think this is a fruitful exercise for Bitcoiners to go through because I think it helps them to sympathize with some of the no-coiners. So for example, like ransomware, is this going to be like a huge problem? No. <laughs> um, uh, if anything, it's going to incentivize in the, in the long run, it's going to incentivize companies to have more secure systems uh, to protect customer data and value and so on. Um, but are people going to be hurt in ways that they wouldn't have without Bitcoin? Yeah, sure. That's a cost. Um, that's a cost that we can mark on this kind of ledger in the thought experiment and one that we can admit to no-coiners no that, you know, it's it's a real cost. Um, and... and um, I've been reading this book called, uh, I just finished it, called Crypto by Stephen Levy. It's, it's a kind of classic book. Um, it's amazing because it was written um, about seven to eight years before Bitcoin arrived on the scene. And the last chapters are about the, the, the battles that the cypher, cypherpunks fought with the U.S. government over privacy and encryption. And all the same kinds of arguments about its overall goodness apply. We can see like, um, uh, like, like in Phil Zimmerman's testimony before like a Senate subcommittee in 1996, he admits the same kinds of things that encryption might be used for. And what people were afraid of is that encryption would be used for things like, you know, drug dealing, kidnapping, terrorism, and child pornography and so on. And um, of course, like Bitcoin could be used for those kinds of things. And maybe it would be used in ways that uh, wouldn't have been possible before, although I think that such an effect would be pretty minimal. Um, but these are the kinds of things that people care about, no quinners care about. These are kinds of things that people feared in the 90s. And these are the kinds of things that people fear now. It's just like human psychology is, um, it's, 
uh, it's the same as it was 30 years ago. People in power um, behave similarly, and Bitcoin is uncensorable value in the same way that like PGP provides you uncensorable information. And so, if, if both of those things are true, like the um, like the consistency of human nature and the similarity between encryption and Bitcoin. And then a lot of the same arguments that we had in the 90s we're having now. And I think this kind of model brings it out. Yeah, Eric Kaysen takes a very similar um, line of argument, you know, in, in his position on Bitcoin as, um, and he, he pulls a lot of the same sort of threads about what the early cypherpunks uh, were fighting for in the days of encryption. Now it's application to uh, its application in the realm of money um, and transforming money into a tool that, you know, has the same sort of, um, I guess, safeguards as encryption does, Yeah, uh, you know, is a powerful thing. So yeah. I've got a question about like, um, what do you say to the no coiner, for example, who, who refuses to acknowledge something like, uh, you know, Bitcoin is a solution to runaway inflation. Like, you know, because you were mentioning before, yeah. like, you know, the, the, these are the basically empirical facts. We've got runaway inflation. We've got all those things. And, you know, they turn around and say, yeah, but Bitcoin doesn't help that. Um, yeah. So the world is, is not objectively better with Bitcoin um, because runaway inflation is caused by uh, greedy capitalists and supply chain uh, breakdown. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Know thy enemy is, um, advice that I can tell that you've taken to heart. So, mm -hmm. so what would I say? I would actually, I would actually give an inch. And so I would, so here's what I would say. Um, poor people, um, should not put all their savings into Bitcoin. I think this is reasonable advice that most people agree with. Maybe some toxic maximalists may not. It's hard to tell. Um, but I think uh, overall, this is probably, this is probably be widely agreed upon. Um, and, and so and it's, for poor people, I think you would want um, two things that uh, closely align with how maybe you and I have um, grown up thinking about savings like you have a you have you have um uh like a, a spending account and a checking account or a savings account and so i think if you're um like in the global south or in uh an area of the world where runaway inflation is a real risk you want an asset that is both unconfiscatable and also, which doesn't lose its value on in the in the long run, and may in fact increase its value in the long run. And you don't have to put all your savings into it, but probably a substantial portion. And and so I, I would say that's what Bitcoin's for. What Bitcoin is not for right now is to is for you to put um, everything in, because precisely because you. You know, as we've seen in the last several months, it can drop by 50%. And so there's a real risk of someone having like bought a top um, and then needing to liquidate uh, to spend at uh, like a local bottom where they've lost, you know, like half of their purchasing power. Uh, but 
if you think that um, Bitcoin is a uh, is something that will uh, be around for a while, then it really pays to put some level of your savings into Bitcoin because you may not have any alternatives. So, so gold shows up in metal detectors. Cash is bulky; it can be stolen. Um, Bitcoin is un. I mean, under best, best practices, it's unconfiscatable. And any major price dip, even if it's you know fifty to sixty percent, it still saves um, uh, your purchasing power if your local currency is hyperinflating, you know, at any rate higher than that. Um, and so, mm. and so, I would say, you know, it's it's okay to use stable coins um, if you want to hedge some savings in Bitcoin. Um, and I would if I were uh, poor and uh, subject to an, you know, a highly inflating currency, I would put some of my savings into Bitcoin uh, because of my view about its long-term success and, and my ability to not put too much in so that I could ride out any substantial price dips. Yes. So I don't know. I guess, you know, I've, I've had my fair share of arguments with yeah. people who will go blue in the face um, arguing the opposite because I, don't, I yeah. don't know if that specifically answers the question or, okay. or at least answers the rebuttal that um, someone might have around like, no, but um, that doesn't matter because, um, you know, the, the problem of inflation is something else. You know, like yeah. you've got people who genuinely believe um, you know, that, that are literally in central banks that say we didn't see runaway inflation coming because they don't believe that yeah. printing $6 trillion um, will have any inflationary effect on the economy. Like, so, so for me, I, I mean, I guess this is my position these days is that like, I no longer bother even trying to convince them because yeah. you, you can't start from a, from a, you can't have a genuine argument or you can't have a genuine debate or discourse with people like that because the, the premises upon which they uh, they make their claims, I mean, at least in my eyes, are false, right? So yeah, you, sure. Like I, so, yeah. So, so this is where okay, it gets good. a little bit difficult. Yeah. So, yeah, the more I think about it and uh, think about what you just said, I would say two things. Number one, if you look at the... The, the recent chain analysis, like 2021 study of Bitcoin adoption on a, um, on a per capita, like purchasing power <laughs> basis, um, it's so striking because outside of the United States, Russia, and China, and you might even include Russia and China in these, every one of these is an emerging market. Like, the, like you have... Vietnam, Pakistan, Venezuela, Argentina. Okay, so when you when I meet a new no corner like this, I'd say, okay, why why are people in these countries buying Bitcoin? Why do they find Bitcoin useful? And um, because they don't want to say that these people don't know better, because that's condescending. Um, and so then you have to go searching for the presumed use cases. And I think the presumed use case is going to be to protect savings or to have a kind of investment that works out in the long run. And then the second thing I'd say is, uh, okay, imagine 
imagine you're um you have you have uh some savings and your currency is inflating at you know 40 to 90 percent over the next year so you know that your money's just gonna like quarter or half or more um what should you do with it what are the options i think often when i talk to people like this they actually haven't thought about it they haven't thought it through um um so suppose they say like gold i'm like okay well where are you going to get it okay and, and do you trust it's real gold I think like Bitcoin fares very well on this kind of um, asset by asset comparison. But I mean, ultimately, will this kind of argument um, convince the strident no coiner? I think you're probably right that it's probably not the the bias is too strong and there's um maybe more going on just beyond like the um the kind of bags of opportunity costs that we were talking about earlier it's probably more deeply ideological you know um so like if you take um someone like um david columbia um who wrote this kind of anti bitcoin book uh a few years ago he thinks Bitcoin is like closely tied to fascism and fascism and white supremacy. Like you're just not, not going to um, convince someone like that. And that's fine. But I mean, so that's my way of saying, yeah, I think you have a point. Um, but I do think that there are people that um, people for which putting themselves in others shoes could help them think about more clearly and that's what the thought experiment in in my piece is supposed to help them do now has this has my piece ever actually helped anyone like probably not <laughs> um but it's but I, <laughs> yeah yeah but I, I mean it's helped me it's helped me think through um it helped me clarify why i think bitcoin is important and if that's all it accomplished well maybe that's good enough Mm. Yeah, man, it's a, it's a, it's frustrating because I, I was actually thinking about it this morning. I was having a discussion with my brother and, you know, he messages me on, you know, his time Australia, I think it's whatever time in the evening and he's, you know, gloating about, you know, my, my short position on Bitcoin is doing really well. So, so he fucking hates Bitcoin. Okay. Um, and he's like, How did that like, happen? You? Oh man, we, we, we do not see eye to eye. Like in his okay. mind, um, Bitcoin is just some sort of, you know, weird, stupid digital asset that he can use to, you know, leverage and uh, make money from going long and short. Like, you know, he's, he's, yeah particularly of the belief that it's, you know, it's never going to be used as money. And, and it's funny, like, as we were going back and forth arguing on text messages, I said, look, my net worth is not down. I said, I've actually got more Bitcoin this week than I had last week. He was like, what do you mean, bro? It's down 50%. I'm like, no, I'm up 5%. I've got 5% yeah. more Bitcoin now. Yeah. Um, so it's like my, my, my worldview, my paradigm is completely different to his. And, you know, and then, then he went and said the stupid thing is like, okay, get this. 
uh, you know, Bitcoin supposedly decentralized and, you know, Binance paused uh, withdrawals. How does that happen? And I was like, Jesus fucking Christ, if that's your level of like argument, yeah. then you have no idea. But see, he, he's one of these avid, like, I mean, the, the little shit sits there and reads, you know, Taleb 24-7 and whatever other stupidity he's reading. Yeah. Um, and he thinks he's incredibly smart. Like he sits there and, you know, play gambles basically on the stock market and the derivative markets. And, and for him, like, you know, Bitcoin is this stupid, you know, digital internet funny money that is, um, you know, designed for gambling. And, and, and anyway, like, after that discussion with him this morning, I was sitting there thinking, I was like, man, fuck, why do people, and you kind of mentioned it, like, you know, you didn't expect Bitcoin to have so many headwinds. Um, yeah. And it's just weird that people have such a bone to pick. And, and I guess I like what you said about, um, you know, the, the opportunity cost of their bags is is one thing, but I, I just can't help but wonder what else is going on in the psyche of some of these people that, lends to their um basically i don't know it's like a they hate bitcoin for some strange fucking reason and and i I really don't understand it it's not like we're going out there you know talking about how we can um burn everything to the ground like you know bitcoin's a noble a noble dream it's a noble idea like we're trying to make the world a better place but you've got these fucking people who treat it like it's yeah. It's the second coming of Satan. You know, it's so strange. Yeah, I think that there are um, two explanations. So I think, um, I mean, of course, there are lots of explanations, but the two, yeah. I think, are especially powerful explanations for what you're talking about. Um, one is that um, even though Bitcoin is um, credibly neutral money, it does seem to fly in the face of um, uh, progressivism as it's traditionally defined. So progressivism as it's traditionally defined is um, an ideology about finding finding government solutions to problems. So seeking solutions in the state um, rather than from the ground up. And um, if you're really firmly committed to that, um, I think a lot of people are very committed to this idea. Then Bitcoin is a non-starter because Bitcoin is is offered as a non-state solution uh, to all sorts of things. Um, to um, because it has automated mon- monetary policy, so we don't have a Federal Reserve. It has um, um, it has uh, like like uh, clearance and settlement, um, but without authorities. Um, and doesn't have voting. <laughs> that's there's no, yeah, that, no, that's right. Um, it's not subject to democracy as, yeah, yeah, um, some yep. people like to put it. Um, um, although I think, I, I mean, I like the res- the typical Bitcoin response that like, you can choose to write a note or not. <laughs> um, it's not like it's, it's involuntary. Um, uh, you can either opt in or opt out, but so that's one, uh, that's one, I think, source of this kind of hatred that you see is that, um, people often find meaning and belonging to uh, like their political tribes and uh, to other people in their own in-group. And so anything beyond that is an out-group. It's something to despise. Um, 
it's like I think this plugs into like something very basic from when we were like hunter gathers, and so, um, and so if if you see this thing that's offered as a kind of solution, it's the exact opposite kind of solution that you're firmly committed to. Then of course I think you're going to see people without much thinking, like like just brain dead responses, right? Because because they know that their ideology is ideology is correct, and so they're you know so so Bitcoin like can't work or Bitcoiners must be wrong because it conflicts with it. So that, I think that's one source. The other source is, um, is I think that a lot of people just don't like Bitcoiners. And um, there's a, there's a stereotype. Um, I think it's some of it's maybe partially true. Uh, some of it's partially not true. Um, so if you, talk to certain people they'll say like oh yeah like bitcoiners like like white tech <laughs> silicon valley bros you know um i think i think that's i mean that's that's not exactly true because um i think bitcoiners are i actually think that's the Ethereum people more than anything else <laughs> yeah 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 exactly um i know very few bitcoiners who are like this um like the kind of I, I think what they have in mind are the like the the venture capitalist leeches <laughs> um, who are like buying you know this these vaporware tokens and private sales and dumping on retail um, uh, as the tokens are released to the public. I think totally. that's that's the kind of thing that they have in mind, and I think that they haven't spent enough time in or around people in the Bitcoin industry to know that there's a a, a fine distinction to make between Bitcoin and everything else. Um, it, but, but there is, I think, um, I think there's something else though, that, that, that might not help us. And that's the kind of like uh, incredibly toxic, toxic maximalism. I think can, that, that I think that can realistically push people away. So, um, but, but, even so, I think this is not the source of hatred or disagreement from people like Elizabeth Warren. Like, like, like she's like Elizabeth Warren does not dislike Bitcoin or is not resistant to evidence because because she knows about some toxic maximalists on Twitter. Like, I don't think that. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that there are like ordinary like non-Bitcoin plebs who are. Um, who have bad experiences with some Bitcoiners like this. And they're like, ah, that's probably not worth my time because they're mean or something. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that, you know, broadly, I've always been a defender of that stuff. I mean, sometimes it, you know, definitely gets fucking stupid and ridiculous, but I've always kind of said that if, um, if someone being mean to you is going to be what defines uh, your capacity to uh, dig deeper on something so techno-sociologically profound, then, um, you know, may maybe maybe that's the, in some senses, the, the litmus test that's required because, like, <laughs> you know, it, it, in, in, in many ways, like, people's... people's um, I don't know. All, all all great discoveries, you know, that a, a price needs to be paid. And I mean, f for for every one 
asshole or dickhead comment uh, in the Bitcoin space, there's, you know, 9,900 um, really good, thoughtful, profound, provoking uh, sure. ideas. And and if if someone's going to play the victim and just focus on the one person that was mean to them or whatever, um, I, I think, I mean, you know, in some ways they, they kind of deserve the, the delayed uh, entry into Bitcoin. And, and this is where yeah. I know like, I've always backed Saifedean for like uh, bullying Taleb out of Bitcoin because, you know, <laughs> it, it was, I mean, it's fucking hilarious because, yeah. um, you know, like I, I I have, you know, very, very little remorse. And, and I think a lot of it just, you know, sometimes it deranges and it, you know, it turns into funny shit, but there's, there's this kind of instinctual sense there by so-called toxic Bitcoiners because, I don't know, humans develop this sixth sense of like uh, disingenuity and and scams and affinity scammers and all this sort of stuff that the Bitcoin community, like this kind of hive mind seems to call out. And and it's really fucking wild to see. Like it's really, I mean, we, you know, the toxic Bitcoiners were calling out Luna like six months ago. When yeah. everyone's like, no, you're just a bunch of fucking assholes. And it is just kind of, no, there's a, there's a sixth sense there. We kind of, we've kind of been through this and maybe it's just a function of having been through multiple cycles or been called crazy for so long or whatever the case is, yeah. um, or having heard the same old fucking uh, FUD over and over again. It's like, okay, here's another you know, yeah, like good. That, 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 that guy yesterday, you know, the, or was it this morning, the, the CFA, um, how he's like, oh, you know, Bitcoin is a disingenuous, <laughs> yeah. you know, how can they claim scarcity on something that can be, you know, divided infinitely? <laughs> I was like, I mean, truly, um, <laughs> truly low IQ, <laughs> but next, next level mathematics, yeah. man. That's it's, like um, PhD shit there. Yeah. Like if only we had spent more time on fractions in third grade, maybe this guy would have been a Bitcoiner. Yeah. But I mean, so like, yeah. So I want to, I want to grant the, like the overall point of your remarks that I think. All right. So let's define um, maximalism. Well, I'd actually be interested in what you think about these definitions. Like they're very rough mm-hmm. characterizations. Um uh, let's characterize maximalism as um, the view that pretty much beyond Bitcoin, everything's a scam. People might like disagree about like by how much or like, you know, like what about stable coins or like what about um, even like maybe some people have like a soft spot for the EVM, the virtual machine, even if it's not on Ethereum, like, like those are kind of edge cases, I think that even among the maximalists, they disagree about, but overall they agree there's Bitcoin, there's everything else, and most of it's scammy. And then there's the toxic maximalists. So what separates the maximalists from the toxic maximalists? The toxic maximalists are very happy to say that the stuff that is over there is a scam when they think it's a scam. Um, and then on top of that, maybe do it without... Um, uh, uh, how should we put this? Um, the, the kind of politeness that you'd expect at a dinner party or something, you know, like you can like, they're very blunt and, um, sometimes maybe sometimes rude. Um, I'm not, I don't, I don't actually don't have anyone in mind in particular. Um, so 
Um, so I think that both maximalists and toxic maximalists have uh, done great good for Bitcoin over um, over the last ten years by calling out scams that are scams, um, even if they have called too many things scams. Um, I think I think because I mean personally, I think fewer things are scams than. Um, uh, what most toxic maximalists would think are scams, um, but um, but anyway, I think that I think that this has been a great good because it increases uh, Bitcoin's credibility. Um, I mean, there are real differences be- between Bitcoin and everything else. Nothing else truly compares. Um, nothing else is as fair or as as credibly neutral, and so on. Um, but <laughs> I think that yeah, you want to say something before I. Do the next part. You're yeah, about I was, to. I was just, yeah, I was. I was just going to say that. Um, I mean, in a in a world which lacks a central authority as a as a regulator, I think what ends up naturally emerging is uh, the the endogenous form of regulation, which is some sort of uh, public square in which um, you know things get called out and and i think it's yeah. actually in 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 the net it's an extraordinarily interesting um thing that's emerged because in 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 many ways like you know the, the you got the bitcoin maximalist and the toxic maximalist the bitcoin maximalists keep the general space uh broadly speaking uh hold, hold it to account but the toxic yeah. maximalists seem to hold the bitcoin maximalists to account yeah, that's right? fair. So, so that they they each have their um, it's kind of like a form, like it's a set of concentric circles, and and that, I guess, loud and tolerant minority, um, has has a role to play because it does. They might not they might not have a hundred percent hit rate in terms of accuracy, but the 95 percent hit rate that they do have, seems to be enough to hold the more um. The more polite or you know uh, cultured or measured maximalists, um, you know, it, it hold it holds them to account. Um, and, and I think, like, I mean, because I've been you know on the on the firing line of you know some of the fucking toxic community and shit like that when I've wasted my time doing like a stupid interview with Richard Hard and everything. And you know, I had the whole fucking thing come after me, and you know, them saying that I'm a fucking retard for. Uh, you know, debating with him and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I got called out on a few things which I could have done better. And, you know, I mean, Breedlove is another example, you know, when he tried to play, you know, yeah. play funny buggers with the um, with the whole, <laughs> uh, what was it called again? Fucking uh, BitClout. Bit something, uh, BitClout, yeah. You know, yeah. like, you know, all, all he had to do was just say, "Yeah, okay, I was fucking trying to make some money on the background, you know, so something like that." But, but right. you know, he he doubled down and got on his high horse, and I still give him shit to this day about it. But, um, you know, Rob's a fucking great guy, and you know, he he never went off and became a shit coiner and all this sort of stuff, um, you know. But at the end of the day, like that that toxicity actually pointed to something true. You know, he he tried to you know, use the holier than thou kind of um, moral high ground to pretend like he wasn't actually, you know, doing something else uh, in the background. So, yeah. so I don't know. I think, I think there is, 
something profoundly important there. And, and yeah, I would just chalk it up to how how does a market, which is effectively what Bitcoin is, how does it self-regulate? And it seems to be this endogenous form of calling out that emerges and, and some of it, sure, it's fucking rude, you know. Sure, a bunch yeah. of assholes there. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, so I accept, yeah, no, I, I grant the point that um, toxic maximalists can, can benefit the Bitcoin eco ecosystem by serving as a kind of immune system um, and engaging in immune system attacks on uh, mm -hmm. foreign invaders, which are looking to um, infect the space with um this the the disease of um scamming uh, I, I i get that the so the but the question is whether um whether that's as effective as every alternative so i grant that there are benefits but i think my question is um would we benefit more from um, an alternative way of doing things. And, um, and it could be that um, even if there's now a better, a more effective way of doing things that may be new, that it, it might've been good to have toxic, the toxic maximalist response up until say like a year ago or two years ago. Um, and then th things have changed because of the way that Bitcoin has grown. Um, so here's here's my idea. So um, so there are two cypherpunk slogans that um, guide my thinking about the Bitcoin industry more than any other. One is the Eric Hughes slogan, cypherpunks write code. The other is the Hal Finney quote about not taking any shortcuts. So um, what, what Hughes meant when he said cypherpunks write code, I think everyone pretty much knows. That's just like, just like shut up and build, you know? Mm -hmm. um, um, and I'm not really a builder. Like I'm, I'm not a programmer. Um, I'm, I'm pretty much useless. Um, uh, especially in that regard, but, um, and so, but, but I think, I think that's a serious thing. And so like in, in the ways that I like can do rather than just say, or show rather than tell, I think that's a good thing to do. Um, the, it's the how funny thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately. So I, he has this essay, I think it's called politics and technology, but, um, I can't promise. And, and he makes the point that. You can't just build. So you can't just live by the Hughes, uh, uh, you know, right code slogan. You have, you have to court the public imagination. You have to court the, uh, you have to court public opinion. And there are better and worse ways to do this. And in my view, the, the, Better way to do this now, especially as the potential audience is so much wider and, and the most valuable targets at correcting information are people like in academic institutions, um, they are policymakers and regulators and so on. 
the way to court their opinion is to behave more like Dale Carnegie and less like Ted Kaczynski. So Dale Carnegie wrote how to win friends and influence people. And I'm not naturally very good at this, but you can guess like what the book is about. <laughs> it's about like, you know, being kind, <laughs> being kind, like, like I, so like I'm, I'm also talking to myself because uh, you can search through my Twitter timeline. It has as many like like dunks and like insults as anyone's. But like I'm trying, I've been trying to move away from it because be- precisely because of this Hal Finney essay. Um, uh, and so like if you if you want to convince these kinds of people, we have to speak in their language and we have to move in their spaces. Um, and I think the best way to do that is to um, speak as they speak and move as they move. Um, and this way, and, and especially um, you can gain credibility doing this by disagreeing with openness and kindness. Um, I think that's what Del Carnegie would tell us to do. Um, Whereas I think of my past self as more like Ted Kaczynski, not that I bombed people. So this is the Unabomber. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, but uh, living as a, as a hermit or a recluse and thinking that uh, Bitcoin will just do its thing, it's inevitable. Um, and, uh, and in the meantime, in order to convince people, I'll just send out these tweet bombs all over the place and um, kind of do my work for the Bitcoin ecosystem that way um, by, by lobbing these you know, tweet bombs everywhere. I think that's less effective now. I, it, um, I think it probably makes us look bad um, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone. And so, um, and so this has been a kind of change for me. It's, um, it's, a, it's a change in my behavior because I think that even though toxic maximalism has had uh, profound benefits. Um, and even though I, I think it would continue to have benefits, I think you could have, we could benefit the Bitcoin ecosystem even more if more of us were less abrasive. Okay, so I will, I will, okay. I will yeah, try yeah. and tie this together because yeah. um, my, my feeling, so, so I agree that, um, being a you know Dale Carnegie esque uh, or having that kind of a a frame or register in language uh, will both uh, be more acceptable uh, to to a wider audience. Number one um, yeah. and number two uh, speak to uh, a new audience, as yeah. you said, policymakers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the the danger with completely walking like they walk and talking like they talk is the becoming like they are and losing touch with um, where we came from. And I think that's where, um, that's where the role of toxic maximalism, for example, will never go away. So, so what I'm visualizing in my mind is kind of like a chain, a a set of chain links is that the toxic maximalists don't need to talk to the policymakers and the general broad market, et cetera, et cetera. Like, um, me, for example, I have no fucking 
desire to talk to politicians or anyone like that. Um, I'm personally happy if my words offend them. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I, I, I guarantee you the, the Dale Carnegie-esque type person probably has Kaczynski's book in his oh, library. For, for sure. Yeah he'll, he'll yeah. Re- yeah, he'll read it in private, but he won't. Yeah. Um, represented in um in discourses so this is where i think like people like you know michael saylor and jack dorsey for example i would almost guarantee they've got nims on twitter um that are like you know in with plebs and the toxic people and everything having yeah. fun and you know watching all that stuff yeah. and they've got a they've got a particular form of conversation here for, from a that that you know fits within the overton window of what is acceptable Good. um but you know that that piece uh, needs to exist because it keeps keeps us um connected to the you know to to the to the core of what bitcoin represents which to me is a modality of existence uh, economically politically and socially speaking that is incompatible with the current paradigm and 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 that's what i think is um is really important to maintain some sort of tether to because if we if we if we all all of a sudden became, you know, really well-spoken and, you know, speaking to the regulators <laughs> and all this sort of shit. Yeah. I guarantee you tomorrow, like we'd end up losing the, um, the, the principles upon which uh, Bitcoin originally emerged as, which is this, you know, incompatible socio-technological phenomenon that doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't play nice with the, with the existing framework. And, and, and yeah, like I, I, I just think that each, each group needs to speak to the group that it's adjacent to, but it doesn't necessarily need to speak to the groups that it's not adjacent to. Um, and and gotcha. then we have these kind of perpendicular, um, you know, modes of communication that, you know, kind of attach to each other. Um, and each kind of group does their, does their part. Um, in the same way as an engine does, in the same way as a civilization does, in the same way as all these things do. So, so I don't think by any means we've, you know, gone beyond the days of toxic maximalism. I just, I just think that they represent one form of communication. Um, you know, it's not the broadest, but it, it definitely has. Yeah. Okay. Good. Way. Yeah. So your view is that um, <clears throat> different audiences require different approaches. So hundred percent. If your audience is Bitcoiners especially maximalist Bitcoiners, then um, what you need for them to hear is toxic maximalism. If your audience you is- sharper, more blunt, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. If your audience is, um, you know, the, the plebs that don't yet have Bitcoin, um, maybe the more Dale Carnegie- um yeah because they they aren't you know these are the people that aren't like ideologically set against bitcoin um uh, if your audience is the trump supporters and the conservatives then you know your language is you know not going to be you know the same as it is going to be on you know progressives and liberals and 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 this is again what what i love about bitcoin is that it seems to because it touches so many different disciplines uh people can kind of pull threads in multiple dimensions um, and yeah. talk to all these different audiences. And that, and that's something that no political modality seems to have. And in fact, I, I think transcends even, you know, specific schools of philosophy is that it just, you, you can basically, 
place a mirror in front of Bitcoin and see what you want to see and kind of yes, express its, true. you know, attributes in, in, in a particular school of thought. And, and, and that's, that's fucking wild. And I think that's part of what makes Bitcoin unbeatable is that mm-hmm. you know, you've got these army of people, like whether it's me, you, the meme people, the breed lovers of the world, the Nick Carter, like whoever the fuck it is, we're all deciphering what Bitcoin means to us and we're expressing it in different ways. And, you know, you talk to a completely different audience than I talk to, than Greg talks to, than Dita Bob talks to and all this sort of stuff. And man, we, we, we seem to, you know, we're, we're taking the lead bullet approach, which is, I think is the only realistic approach. There's no such thing as a silver bullet. Yeah. Um, but it's the, you know, the lead bullet approach to actually uh, transforming the world in a, in a profound way. And yeah, that, that's where I'd kind of, I don't know, that, that's how I'd holistically try and frame this all up. Yeah, I mean, so toxic maximalism sounds more compelling to me if you put it that way, that there's a smaller, more intentional audience um, that that mm-hmm. is um, already predisposed to Bitcoin. And so it's acting as an immune system, not on Twitter in general um, or in the public square, but to this smaller community of Bitcoiners. Um, yeah, that, that may be reminder. right. What's, yeah, that may be right. Um, what? Um, so here, l- let me ask you this. So, um, so my my brother wrote this book called Grandstanding. So it's about mm-hmm. um, so moral grandstanding is the idea that um, you behave in ways or speak in ways um, with, with the, the main purpose of appearing morally respectable. Okay, so um, what are some of the ways that people do this? Well, maybe putting pronouns on a, a, a Twitter bio, um, maybe calling out the oil industry, you know, to your like fellow environmentalists on Twitter. Um, maybe engaging in like kind of mob uh, cancel pile on to try to um, get someone fired from their job for saying that there are like real differences between the genders or something. Um, There are two, I would say that there are like two different things wrong with those sorts of behaviors. One is that um, often this, this people are wrong about what's true or false. Um, but then secondly, um, I'd say that, um, like the, like the Twitter mob, um, trying to get someone canceled or, um, trying to, uh, grandstand in any of these like kind of particular ways, it, it makes you worse off. Like you you become like a worse person. And, and I see, or I suspect that I see certain of these same kinds of things within Bitcoin. So like in, on like, like woke Twitter, you have like purity tests. Um, and so um, like you, you can't say certain things, or if you like, if you kind of teeter on the edge of saying that you like clarify, like, no, I don't mean that. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I, I, I suspect I see all these same kinds of things on Bitcoin Twitter. So everything besides Bitcoin is a scam. Okay. 
And, um, and if you teeter on the edge of saying maybe something besides Bitcoin isn't a scam, like you get attacked and, uh, and, and then people in, in attack, will attack you with um, increasing, um, increasing severity. Um, mm -hmm. I think when we, so I, uh, so like your vision for toxic mass maximalism, <clears throat> I find it compelling. I see that there's a use for it because I hadn't thought enough about there being like a smaller intended audience for it. And that makes, that makes total sense to me. But I wonder if there are still better ways of doing that other than um, the kind of public attack. I guess you might say, well, that's the only way it can work. Um, because it's only the fear of the like the public toxic maximalist mob that will keep people in line. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. yeah basically. I mean, that's yeah. kind of like you know, it aligns with you know, ancient uh, you know, the ancient idea of ostracism, right? Is yeah. like you know, when you're ostracized from the from the community, that's kind of like a, it's a it's a preemptive <clears throat> correction mechanism for um, you know for poor behavior. Um, and I mean, if let's just say that, um, five out of 10 times, um, that attack saves some people from financial ruin in the absence of a centralized regulator, yeah. I think that <clears throat> endogenous mode of regulation is incredibly fucking powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, because that, that's what it is. It's, it's an, it's an endogenous regulatory modality like that that's sure. what it's doing um and sure. and i would say the hit rate is probably better than five out of ten i think it's more closer to eight or nine out of ten um yeah i don't i don't know about that like, yeah well i mean sh show me some examples of where um bitcoiners have been have been wrong like i mean you know called out like i called out ralph powell for example yeah sure in 2019 right yeah and people fucking you know people came after me saying oh you're toxic you're an asshole blah blah, blah. and i was like i can sense it in his fucking <laughs> language he's gonna go down the shit path and he's gonna wreck all these people yeah and lo and behold that's exactly what happened so so i don't know i feel i feel like the hit rate's pretty high but um you yeah. know if you can show me an example of some you know points in time where Bitcoiners have been fundamentally wrong about calling something a scam. I'm open to it. Yeah. But I don't know. I yeah. Like good. Um, so uh, uh, we probably disagree about which things are scams. Um, mm -hmm. That's like a different issue than how, how you call it out. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, maybe we disagree about those two things, even though the more I talk with you, the more I'm sympathetic, not that I would, like engage in this kind of behavior much anymore, but I, I, I more clearly see the rationale behind it. Um, so, yeah, so I think, I think we have maybe like two slight disagreements um, like on the Venn diagram, like, like um, uh, of like, what's a, what's a scam and what's not a scam. Um, mm -hmm. or I guess it's not a Venn diagram. It's just like two partitions. Um, we, we portion out the projects probably a bit differently, um, and then the slight disagreement about how to handle people who promote or build. Um, yeah. So I guess there's like, that there's, may or may not be considered yeah, scams. yeah, there's like yeah, the yeah. people who like build it, the people who promote it and buy, like promote buying it. And then there's the people who are like, 
on the outside looking in and how we respond to them who might be dabbling in those things. Um, so like in my, in my view, um, like I think in the long run and for most normal people, telling people that the thing like, like suppose that someone is like, like a basically good person, they mean well, they're open to evidence, but they buy Luna, let's say, um, and they have like their UST and anchor earning 20% yield. They're just a bit clueless. They haven't thought it all the way through. I think a lot of people are in this position. Um, I think that outright telling people that they've invested in a scam is about as effective, like even if it's true, it's about as effective as um, like telling family members that they need to change their diets or um, telling <laughs> friends that they, <laughs> telling friends that um, that their boyfriend or girlfriend is uh, like, you know, is insane. Or, uh, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. like you're, yeah. you're committed to these things. You, you're wedded to them. I mean, like, so like if you buy Luna, like you like, there's a reason why you bought Luna. And so you're married to it a bit in a, in a way. And so in order to effectively divorce these people from the things that they should be divorced from, you, you have to take a more oblique or indirect approach to be the most effective. So like, I think, I think, that's probably true for most people, but um, I think that's the point that you can grant because you're, you were just earlier saying that your toxic maximalism or toxic maximalism in general is most effective and should be limited to Bitcoiners themselves and not like to, to this kind of like innocent casualty that I was just discussing. Yeah. Well, but you know, the audience is so multifaceted that yeah. you know maybe that toxicity actually works on as i said like for example conservative rights you know more right wing people who are you know more prone to that kind of you know language and and they may like what i've done in the past for example is um i've framed uh things like ethereum and proof of stake as digital forms of uh, central banking yeah. um to people who are more conservative based, you know, and I just say, look, all, all these cryptocurrencies are doing is that they're reinventing the Federal Reserve and the and the central government on a on a digital layer and swapping out the bankers for the nerds, right? So, so yeah. that's all we've done. And yeah. when I framed it like that, all of a sudden these people have a predisposition against centralized authority. They're like, fuck, you know what? This this is a fucking stupidity. Like what what, what am I, you know, opening up to? So so I think, mm. you know, to, to your point at least, it's that, you know, your register, um, your your language register is really important because, you know, you need to speak to a specific audience. But I mean, this is where it gets hard on Twitter is that you don't know specifically who your fucking audience is. Um, yeah, Twitter's so, you know, you're gonna, pretty chaotic. So it's it's impossible, right? Yeah. Um and, and and you know that that's where I mean you know, you, you have the different size accounts, like um, there's a specific type of people who like my flavor, who like this flavor, that flavor, your flavor, et cetera. And, and I don't know, I, I just don't think that there's, um, you know, maybe, maybe like calling out toxic maximalists for being too toxic is <laughs> in itself a 
endogenous regulatory, you know, market process sure. of, you know, trying to keep them in check as well. So, so it's, it's, yeah. it's an interesting thing. I, I think yeah. that, um, you know, all of these, like so long as we're able to, but th this is, I think probably the, the, the most important part is so long as we're able to actually freely call each other toxic, stupid, moron, this, that, as long as we can do that, yeah. um, somewhere in the noise, we may actually find a kernel of truth. Um, yeah. Whereas if we're stripped of the capacity to do so, then, then all fucking hope is lost because then, you know, then we're not actually going to be able to get to truth because then, yeah, like you said, everything will be, everything will be censored out. Uh, and, and that's a more dangerous place to be. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, um, I think, it, uh, they take this kind of criticism. Well, you have to already have a level of humility that is yeah. willing to take the, the kernel of the, of the criticism and not let the, um, you know the, the delivery edges, method. The delivery yeah, method affect yeah. how you receive it. Yeah, everything like yeah. all criticism is a blessing to me in this way. That often that's there's it. a truth you can use to improve yourself. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You know, that that yeah. comes with a level of like maturity and and thick skinness. Um, and you know, I mean, in in the beginning, we're all fucking laughed at for something we did that was stupid. And you know, t tough love has its place. Um, you know, it can get. A little wild out there but you know the that's uh yeah we, we all we all have to speak a particular type of language and some people are just better at the toxic language and some people are better at the at the measured carnegie-esque language yeah i guess not me but i know people who are and i look up to them <laughs> uh, <laughs> indeed yeah indeed all right my friend i have a i have a hard stop i've got to jump on a call okay um is there any is there any um final quick thoughts here? Um, I'll have your links in the show notes. Like, is there anything that um you'd like to let people know, uh, maybe about the book that's coming up or anything like that? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, my two collaborators, Andrew Bailey and Bradley Rettler, uh, we're going to be working on the book together. Um, the book is called Resistance Money. It's going to be uh, an accessible book, making a philosophical case for Bitcoin. Um, with the tools of philosophy, um, uh, politics and economics. So, um, be on the look at for that maybe next year, um, our, our work in the meantime is, uh, has been deposited at uh, resistance.money. And mm -hmm. just let me say that I'm incredibly grateful, Alex, for you having me on the pod and especially for you inviting me to write a piece for the Bitcoin times. I wouldn't have written that piece without you and um, it's helped me a lot and it's opened some opportunities for me and I've just really enjoyed chatting with you. And um, even if we have some slight disagreements about things, it's good to chat with a new friend and um, um, it's good to know that um, over the next several years, we'll be um, spreading Bitcoin like dandelions all over the world. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you writing the piece for Bitcoin Times and coming on. Um, always like these discussions because, uh, yeah, you know, when when we when everyone sits there and agrees with each other, shit can get boring. So this is um, it's 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 good to kind of stretch and challenge the mind a little bit, and yeah, and, and have these discussions and actually prove to the fucking world that two people can disagree on something and still have a civil discourse. So it's a beautiful thing. Yes, of course, of course. All right, thank you, Alex.
All right, buddy. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to the Wake Up Podcast. Find us on the Fountain app and send us a boost with a comment. I'll try and read them each week and send you a shout out. And remember to grab a copy of the Uncommunist Manifesto and join us in defeating plague that is consuming our world.